and welcome to the second episode of What We See, the podcast hosted by myself, Connor Donahue, and my colleague Charlie Jobson. And as we described in our first episode last month, the aim of this podcast is really to give our listeners an insight into what it's like working for one of the largest technology companies in the world and to share some stories and insights about what we see in our daily working lives. And I think between myself and Charlie that this generally involves us going into different types of businesses and working with them to try and overcome any business challenges they have using SAP's technology. So this is, as I said, our second episode. We have already uploaded our first episode onto various social platforms such as Lemur, shout out to the man Shane Monahan on the conspiracy. Charlie's also on the Lemur conspiracy. Uh, we have the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. So we're across all platforms and we'll hopefully continue to keep that going. But before we kick off our second episode, uh, I just want to reflect on our first episode, the last episode of Graham. And you know, we received lots of good feedback on it and yeah, most of which was positive, but I think I'd firstly like to say thanks to everyone for listening to the first podcast, and if people keep listening to it and enjoy it, we'll keep producing it and try to get more interesting guests like we have today. And I think the most the common piece of feedback that we did get was that people liked the casual, informal sort of style to the conversation, and I think that worked quite well. So again, we'll take that on board and try to continue to continue that theme throughout the rest of the podcast. And we didn't receive, I think our listeners are quite kind to us in the first yeah, episode. We didn't, first one, yeah, we, 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 we didn't receive many uh, <laughs> criticisms other than that it might have been a bit too short. So we've extended this, we've given ourselves a bit more time for this conversation and we'll see how it goes now. So that's the talking, the intro part done. Uh, and I think it's probably about time we introduced our second special guest to the What We See podcast. Uh, Darren Edgar is here to my left. And Darren is a Canadian. And from what I've seen on Darren's Twitter handle, she's a, a corporate entrepreneur, a tech leader, a skier, sailor, knitter, and an auntie. Was that all correct, Darren? It is all correct. Good. Very diverse Twitter handle. <laughs> Uh, just a couple of things that I picked out from doing my research on you, Darren. You nominated by Computer Weekly as one of the most influential women in UK tech in 2018, and you're a member of the judging panel of the 2018 UK Tech Leaders Awards. So, this is no, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse guest we have on here. <laughs> this, this is. <laughs> these are these are quite uh, serious accolades to have in the software technology industry, Darren, so. We have a whole hour to disappoint you, Connor. So <laughs> I, t I take this as my challenge. <laughs> no, no, it's great to have someone of uh, your experience, expertise, and knowledge on this podcast. So I think we should be in for a treat. Charlie, anything to say since our last podcast? No, you know, uh, excited to kick it off. I think Darren's gonna be a great guest today. I think we've got some really good topics to discuss. Um, Darren, I don't think you want to do any more of a bit of an introduction around yourself. Funny fact. Yeah. Funny fact. Well, the funny fact is um, the knitting and the ante. Um, <laughs> and that's why I include it on my 
Twitter profile because as, as you guys are doing with the podcast series, you know, trying to humanize technology and humanize mm. the people who sell technology. I think with social profiles, it's good to add in those quirky pieces of information yeah. about yourself because they are those those are real pieces of information, but they also kind of talk a bit about me and what's important to me and my mm. family and my background in Canada is one of the things that's really important to me. And I, I do bring a lot of that background to what I do every day, and it's, it's why I do so much work in the technology industry as well, mm. outside of just sort of, you know, the, the nine to five. Mm. Um, so no, I don't, you know, knit for people <laughs> <laughs> as part of the technology industry. But what what that is, is it's something that was taught to me by my, my grannies, and I've just sort of always done it. And I think with people who are leaders in the technology industry and do have influence over the, the community of people that are working in that space, why they have influence is because their value system makes people trust them. Yeah. And things that they bring to the table about themselves and where they're from is why CFOs and CIOs and, and their clients and their colleagues and peers mm. pay attention to what they have to say. It's also when you get it wrong every so often. It's also why they cut you some slack and don't really hold you, you know, pin you to the wall when you've said something that maybe you were a little hasty in saying. Okay. So um, that's what those things on my Twitter handle are about, is it's sort of sharing a bit about myself and, and, and why I do business the way I do. Hmm. Interesting. So what are you knitting at the moment? Um, a snood. A snood. A snood out of a lovely um, uh, alpaca blend from John Lewis. Oh, right. <laughs> do you want to describe what a snood is for the listeners that might not know? Com- <laughs> it's, sort of a, uh, it's sort of a neck warmer hood sort of a thing, so you can just sort of wear it around your neck, but then when it starts snowing outside, you can pull it over your head. Multi-purpose? Multi-purpose, yeah. Okay. And very effective in colder climates. <laughs> like London is, you know, kind of November to February, and Canada is 12 months of the year. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, very welcome, uh, Darren. It's great to have you here, as I said. And I know we've sort of pulled out a few topics that we want to touch on, sort of broad range of topics, but we'll just see how the conversation goes. Sure. I don't think we yeah. don't have to be to the agenda per se but let the organic conversation flow so I think the first topic that I wanted to uh, talk to you about was again triggered from my research of your bit of your background and your education and that was that you have a CPA qualification so for those of you I don't know if Charlie knows what CPA means but it's accounting qualification there some you, sort of there you go yeah <laughs> So I think it's a certified public accountant. Is that what that means? Yeah. In, the States? yeah. in uh, Canada, all of the accounting bodies mm-hmm. merged mm-hmm. Um, within the last ten years. It's while I've lived in England, but mm-hmm. so there used to be a Canadian chartered accountant, mm-hmm. a Canadian uh, certified management accountant, and then mm-hmm. a, a Canadian certified general accountant. Mm-hmm. So there was CA, CMA, CGA, and they've all merged mm-hmm. as. CPA. CPA, yeah, and normally people think of CPA as the American, yeah, uh, yeah. chart certified public accountant, but um, so I, mine is a certified management accountant was okay. the one that I did after university, and um, and so when it all sort of just merged together, I kind of went along with, with it. it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and the reason I sort of wanted to talk about it was because a bit like yourself, I have an accounting. So drop into the conversation mm-hmm. again. <laughs> 
whatever, Charlie. And <laughs> but neither of us are practicing as an accountant. Yeah. I have for the last few years. I'm now in this role, but in a different capacity. But you know, it's something that I think has allowed me to you know understand business from a different perspective and give me maybe more insights into different areas where others may not necessarily see things from but you know how do you feel having the background in finance and management accounting has it influenced your career to date it's served me well it's uh, as you point out it, it became a foundation for a lot of other things I didn't really set out to become an accountant. It was just the program that the kids with really good marks when I finished high school went into. I wasn't actually one of those kids, but I thought I should hang out with them. So I sort of you know, took, took the marks I did have on the road and ended up doing it. And then I, I came out of university and ended up you know, doing it. But again, I was reasonably happy, but I, I wouldn't say I was world's best accountant or anything. Yeah. But but I sort of settled into it. And then when I ended up being a client on an SAP project, the penny dropped and I realized, oh, this is the type of thing I, I should be doing. Mm. And because of this background, I kind of know what the clients want. So mm -hmm. in the early days, that's what I used it for, was I know what the clients want or I know where they're coming from. And it was that when you were in PwC? Yeah, well, it was pre-merger, so I've yeah. just dated myself with that comment, <laughs> so it was Canada's Pricewaterhouse uh, SAP practice at the time. And so when, the, when I started implementation consulting, that's what it gives you, is it gives you your past to play with yeah. the finance director and the accounting manager. You can have all those conversations, and the client doesn't have to change their terminology. They can say whatever they want, and someone with that background will understand what you're talking about. Later on, as time wore on and I got into client management and trying to influence decisions and investments and roadmaps for clients, again, it gave you that instant credibility and past play. But further to that, when I was starting to sell to clients and for people who, like yourself, Connor, when you're sort of coming into more of a business development role, if you know the financial statement, you can find all your opportunities because mm. all you really have to do is run through the financial statements and the notes and you can kind of figure out where they have problems. Yeah. And then there, that's what you start talking to them about, about where they should be spending their money, not where you'd like them to be spending yes. their and money. And almost moving away from speaking traditionally in our roles about IT into yes. speaking about business strategy. It's a much more credible conversation mm -hmm. yeah. to say, I think you have these problems that need solving. Let's talk about those. Rather than, I have these widgets on the shelf that I think you'd like to buy. Could mm -hmm. we talk about those widgets? Yeah. So it's, it's a value-selling approach. Yeah. So yeah. people with those backgrounds can do that with certain si mm -hmm. types of roles, like the COO and the CFO, because that's what they understand is yeah. problems that need solving. I was actually speaking to friend of mine last week and she works in an insurance company in Dublin and she's in a finance position there and they use SAP to an extent uh, not for every piece of every yeah. across all the entire business but just for uh, I think general ledger or something but the partner that they bought SAP off 
you know, she was saying, I don't think we had the best implementation of it. it they didn't really understand our business. When they came in to pitch SAP to us, they're talking about using SAP for stock and raising purchase orders. And you know, as an insurance company, it wouldn't take you know, great genius to work out that you don't really hold stock. As an insurance company, you sell insurance policies. Yeah. So you know, that was just, I thought, baffling that someone trying to sell yeah. software was going in to a, an insurance company, which it says above the door, and start yeah. talking about stock. You know, that is pretty amateur. Yeah, just it. It's the kind of a finance background is the kind of background that helps you see where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. Where is the impact of that process going to happen? Mm -hmm. um, as well as you understand why a bad design is bad. So if if you're a for most of my career I was in consulting. So you can see that a certain process design is going to have a bad impact. It's not going to go well. It will end up in a financial result that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of follow it through to see where that's going to happen because of that background. Whereas if you are um, somebody who arrives at implementation consulting from maybe a more pure technical background without a business bent to what you've done, It'll just take you longer to get to that. It'll take a lot longer to get to yeah. that merging of business impacts to technical design. Mm -hmm. um, in the R3 days of SAP, <laughs> and probably maybe the early ECC days of SAP. So th these are two, for our non-technical listeners, these are early le generations e uh, <laughs> SAP pro products. Most of the global consulting and sales community in the ERP industry, not just SAP, were former business people. So they were people who were purchasers, were project managers, were shop floor managers, um, were engineers by trade that did product design. Most of the SAP and ERP industry space were not technical staff. They were people who had business lives yeah. from yeah. somewhere else and then ended up on a project mm. as a client and then liked it, they really enjoyed it, and so then they went consulting, or they went selling, or they went doing you know, a role in that space, and it's, you know, it's a great industry, and, mm. that, and in, the, in its infancy, that's where most of the expertise came from. I think today, expertise comes from different sorts of places in addition to that, but that was probably you know, a 20 or 30 year time frame yeah. where People were very connected to their business domain areas. So mine was finance, but you know, yeah. lots of the industry was many other places as well. Or the industry area like automotive or oil and gas or, um, you know, those two industries jump out because they were the first people to embrace ERP when it came out, sort of late 70s, 80s, that sort of time frame. Again, bit dating myself. I'm actually- A bit before your time, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> The early talent program didn't go back that far, I don't think. I'm actually Charlie's younger cousin. <laughs> you just can't tell on the podcast. Just, so for me, just picking up on one of the pieces of feedback we got just around SAP and perhaps introducing SAP in a bit more detail. Um, you know, obviously, Darren, you spent a lot of your career in and around the SAP ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, what was it you think that sort of first attracted you to wanting to work in and around SAP? It wasn't so much working in and around the product, it was the nature of the work itself. I like solving puzzles, 
and I like the people that solve puzzles. And those two things are what ERP projects and any large enterprise platform project is. It's mm -hmm. people solving puzzles. And even with the world moving to cloud platforms, it's still a puzzle to be solved. How are you going to run your business? How are you going to solve these problems? How are you going to capture your opportunities? How are you going to avoid a risk? And that's what I enjoy doing, is I like having those conversations with people, and then I like pulling together teams of people into mm. camps and playing <laughs> camp counselor <laughs> to solving the problem. Um, so if anybody's ever been on my teams or or my project teams over the years, that tends to be the tone <laughs> for the culture on my project team is um, kind of like going camp. to camp. Sounds great. <laughs> Where everybody's in different cabins, but we do some group activities, but you'll do some alone <laughs> activities, but it's all in a bit of a program and you gotta stay on time. Or Toasting you marshmallows yeah. with the campfire. Yeah. Knitting. Exactly. Knitting for beginners. <laughs> if you're a little more senior, you can lead the other kids. <laughs> group sing songs. Yeah. yeah. So if you were to go back to sat in Granny's knee learning to knit, <laughs> and she said, what is SAP, what would you say to her? Tools. It's a big bin of connected tools. And if you have that big bin of connected tools, then you probably don't need to go looking for other tools for a really long time. But you do need to know what problem you're solving. You need to know what you're trying to accomplish. And that's the hard part. Most humans are reasonably capable, but you know most of us are not rocket scientists, so we need to work with other humans to figure out what really are we trying to accomplish. And if you can figure that part out, the rest of it's pretty easy. But most people listening to this podcast and, and the three of us talking, if you asked for examples, everybody would have a problem child project. Mm -hmm. Everybody would have the project gone wrong. The ones that went right if, if people were able to come up with those examples, the stories they're usually telling is we all were going in the same direction. We were all paddling on the, you know, on the right sides of the boat, mm -hmm. going down the right way on the river. And everything else then kind of drifts away because you kind of know where you're going and everybody shares that opinion of where you're going. Um, even if we think of our team that we work on, you know, the three of us today, the things that go the best are the areas where the, we have clarity around mm. and everybody has the same clarity around yeah. what you're doing um, so that's what I, I think any enterprise platform is but SAP in particular is tools and they're connected and what they mean is you don't have to invent the tool you don't have to invent mm. the way forward you just have to know what you're trying to accomplish and then you can work towards and it do you even, no, there's one thing knowing what, where you, what you want to accomplish but another element of that be why you want to accomplish exactly what and that's you know if you've read Simon Sinek or listened to mm. Simon Sinek which most people have start with why is absolutely um, the most fundamental concept when you're trying to figure out what you're trying to accomplish because I think there's sort of three imperatives that most C-level people are trying to accomplish they're either trying to reduce a cost capture an opportunity or avoid a risk every goal that they have is some variation or combination of mm -hmm. those things. But if you don't know why, you'll, you'll prioritize incorrectly or not yeah. quite right. So if you don't know why you're doing one or two of those three things, you may choose the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. So choose, and you, you see it with a lot. So for example, if you are in financial services, quite often you tend to more highly prioritize avoiding a risk 
over capturing an opportunity. Yeah. That's a I'm painting with a broad brush, but you know, a lot of people that have conversations in the financial services industry would probably agree that you have a lot of those conversations talking about those regulations. Yeah. If you're talking to a challenger bank, they don't have that conversation that way. They tend to have the conversation about capturing mm. an opportunity. And so what a surprise they have. Mm. And then I was only reading this morning, I think it was City AM on the tube, uh, that N26, that German startup challenger bank, mm. they're mm-hmm. facing some new com- uh, compliance breach because all these challenger banks, they're not yeah. that diligent on their yeah. know your customer when you're onboarding you and then that leaves them exposed for money laundering and yeah. breaching all those you know really stringent compliance rules that every other established bank has to adhere to there's levels to things mm. so one of our clients that is in the energy industry that i spend a lot of time with is one of the largest companies in the world so their global strategy talks about capturing opportunities mm. and what they see themselves as today and in 25 years and that whole story is about capturing opportunities and they've put together a strategic relationship with SAP that tells that story. But then I do sessions with the business units and the business units are under that umbrella so they have that sensibility but the business units really own avoiding risks as well as reducing costs so the conversation becomes more granular at that level and a little more process-oriented, people-oriented, a little less visionary, a little more so execution. More, more tactical. <laughs> more so tactical. short-term investments to get a job done yeah. rather than strategic. Yeah. Because the people are charged with different levels of yeah. those yeah. Yeah. objectives. But I think what, you know, back to your original question is, you know, what does your business background from your first life yeah. <laughs> bring to your second life? is it, it lets you help the clients put things in perspective. It lets you help identify different whys, different frameworks to solve the puzzles, mm. really, because most of us operate, you know, even if you're thinking about your own, lot, your own problems in your own life, you don't necessarily make a two-by-two two cube for every single problem you have. But if someone can help you with a bit of a framework, a bit of a structure around how to think it through, it is really helpful. Yeah. I like people to help me with stuff like that. <laughs> Give me a framework so I can figure out what to do with my back gate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good, yeah. Um, it, it is interesting to see when you go down through your LinkedIn and see all the different roles, because you've been in a number of different roles across quite a few industries and spent a lot, spent a lot of time in the oil and gas sector, it seems from, and that's, I think, where you originally came across SAP, mm-hmm. is that right? And implementation projects there mm-hmm. in your Calgary, PwC Calgary days. And I suppose is that you weren't particularly tied to that? Was that just because in Canada there's a big oil and gas industry or was it something that you were particularly interested in? Both. Mm-hmm. I'm Western Canadian. I grew up in Edmonton and then I lived in Calgary, which is the uh, center of the Canadian energy industry. It's also a hub for the, the world energy market. You know, Western Canada supplies quite a lot of power to the Western United States as well as you know other cities mm-hmm. within the U.S. So it does tend to be the bread and butter of that economy. But it also fuels a lot of other industries downstream. So you just learn a lot about 
other types of processes by being part of that industry, like mm. manufacturing, assembly, process industries. You, because it's such a complex industry, you learn a lot about everything that comes with it. Yeah. Project management, um, large corporate financials, because those companies buy and sell a lot of properties. So even just the financial models and financing, it's one of the most interesting industries in the world. Mm. When I came to the UK, I thought I knew a lot about oil and gas, and I was uh, unpleasantly surprised that I didn't know a lot about oil and gas here, because it all looks different when you're from a country that does not have an abundant supply of oil and gas. Yeah. It's more of a retail utility downstream market. So when I arrived here, I was selling uh, a lot to the mining industry and utilities, and I loved it because I felt like I was learning a new part of an industry that I'd been part of for a long time. Yeah. Um, so most of the clients that I've um, worked with over the years that are sort of majors in terms of EMP firms, um, I've worked with now for 20 years, more than 20 years in different parts of the world. The one that I mentioned earlier, um, I've worked with you know, uh, their company in uh, South America, Africa, Western Canada, all over the US, the UK, parts of Europe, Russia. So even though it's always divisional and sometimes um, they're a global strategy, for example, more recently it's been more their global strategy, I feel like I actually know a lot about their culture and their people and how they make their decisions. Mm, yeah, there's a massive industry. And I think, is BP the, one of the largest retailers in the UK? I think so, well, in terms yeah. of the retail, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's something you just wouldn't even think of, you know, you yeah. never wouldn't expect them to be up there with the M&Ss and the... Yeah, well, and it's, it's cool that you bring up the retail angle because doing that whole downstream trading aspect of the oil and gas industry, there is no more complex model for price competition mm -hmm. than that. So in, since I've been in the UK, I've done a lot of work with retailers like M&S, Sainsbury, um, a lot of mid-market retailers like Ted Baker, White Company, Card Factory, you know, lots of companies that size. And having that pricing background when you're talking to those companies is very useful to them. Yeah. Because they make money off their prices and their ability to manage rates through the supply chain. Mm. So bringing that to the table and talking about optionality and forward contracts and futures, they do that in those industries now too. They didn't used to, but now they do also, especially a vertically integrated company like John Lewis and M&S, yeah. where they white label a lot. They will forward contract back a lot of their raw materials, or if they're doing contract manufacturing, they'll work with their supply chain to mm. contract that out to manage mm. their price sensitivity as well. But th their, I suppose, the different main difference, their raw material isn't as volatile as the price. They don't have to pull it out of the ground, yeah. but cotton, you know, it's does have a commodity fluctuation. Yeah. Um, fuels do impact the manufacturing process because mm. you need power for the plants. Um, you know, large vendors will actually build independent power plants beside a clothing manufacturing plant to minimize the play on their utility rates. Right. I said that really quickly. I'm kind of a bit surprised, surprised I remembered that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> So kind of pointing to your question, all of these industries relate to each other. And, um, you know, with the Industry 4.0 content that's 
out a lot now since yeah. it was released um, in the last couple of years, it talks about the disaggregation of industries. And I feel like that early background I had in the oil and gas industry was really useful for now being able to see that any company can be part of many industries. And yeah. as a person trying to help those companies, you need to think more broadly, more generically about their processes, not so much pigeonhole them into an industry solution, because they could be taking solutions today from anywhere. Yeah, I think this is quite an important topic as well, is actually knowing a business from the back through to the front. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've been doing a lot of work in consumer products and I spent, you know, a couple of days over at factories on site with businesses, seeing how they actually produce their products. So when, you know, for example, in baking, you see them mixing their, their three main products, going through the kneader, going through the oven, you know, actually seeing that from there um, and then going to speak to them about their business, you've got a lot more credibility, which I think is, you know, pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, the factory tour is the most important. Yeah, 100%. Um, upfront client engagement activity to go see what they do and have a grown-up human conversation about it and take notes and then use it try and apply that to the upcoming activities you have there's nothing more irritating to a client when you know you know me as their salesperson shows up and asks them a bunch of questions about their business and then they never see their answers in my next steps or in my next activities they never see how that ever made a difference yeah and so being able to connect the dots and go oh they said this to me when we were down by the shipping dock mm-hmm. connect it to why i'm talking about something else and engage them in that conversation those are the people that sell those yeah, are the people yeah, that sell yeah. very well with clients the ones that can connect it and go ah if the left hand heard this, the right hand needs to be saying this. Well, it's giving the customer confidence that you understand the real challenges that they're facing yeah. and you understand their business. You, you paid attention to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that you're a valued, you're going to be a partner with them. Yeah, exactly. Because pr- you don't just buy enterprise software and sign yeah. a contract and walk away. You know, it's a, And clients it's a really... It's been my experience that they really don't expect you to be some sort of expert, but what Mm. they do expect is that you give them the respect of your attention. Mm. And having done that, if you work it into what you do next, they'll give you all the time in the world. So if you really don't understand how they manage something, but you continue to explore or continue to ask questions and fine tune what you're doing based upon that conversation, they will feel respected, engaged, included, addressed, Mm. and it never mattered that you weren't an expert in and I think anything. Again, again, when we've obviously now got the internet, you know, as a salesperson, a lot of my um, customers, prospects are going online and doing so much research before mm-hmm. I even go and engage with them. So I think a really important way to differentiate is going, getting in, you know, the lab coats, getting into the factories and seeing how they actually run as a business. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, one of Connor's questions on our prep sheet <laughs> was <laughs> failures and how to overcome them. Uh, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm Damn jumping you. ahead, but um, when I was thinking about sort of how do I feel about my failures and how to overcome them, the the thing that that jumped out at me was that anything I'm actually good at is something that I've failed the most at because I've had ample opportunity to practice. Mm. (laughs) I've had lots and lots of failures to pinpoint what exactly I'm doing wrong. And it's usually the whites of the eyes of the clients where I'm 
saying something to them and I realize I've just lost them yeah. or I've just screwed up so royally and they are too nice to tell me but I can tell <laughs> I can tell I've screwed it up just by looking at them yeah, yeah. and and that's probably been the most valuable thing out of the experiences that I've had is that ability to fail very frequently and the nice people that I've worked for that allowed me to fail really frequently mm-hmm. while I learned and figured it out so now if I have any confidence around how I deal with customers, it's from all those areas where I watched the faces mm. of failure <laughs> and rejection <laughs> for years. And so um, you can kind of adjust your pace. Yeah, so if it's yeah, happening yeah, today, yeah. I can adjust really quickly to go, oh, that's not working. <laughs> okay, let's move it over. <laughs> the reason I talk, I brought up failure as one of the topics to talk about was because you know you look at someone like you Jaren you know you've been recognized by the industry at large as you know an important influential person in the industry you've had you know a stellar career on paper so far between your education your qualifications the all the big brands that you've worked for the PWCs SAPs etc and you know you on the outside you think you know Jaren's never put a foot wrong but that might not necessarily be the case. I'm sure there's some failures in there, and as you've alluded to, you know, of course, you wouldn't be in the position you are if you hadn't failed, because you, know, you hadn't learned from those failures. I think it's important that you know people actually say, yeah, it's okay to fail and learn from those failures and move on. Yeah, I mean, most of my career has been a right failure. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> really, most of it this is will be failures. Because <laughs> even if, you know, you think about good, really, really, really great salesmen and saleswomen in the technology space have about a 30 to 40% close ratio, right? Over whatever it is, 18 to 24 to 36 months. So most of the time on paper, they're, fi- they're losing deals. But those are the best people because they know how to do it. They know what gets a win, but they have to work it through. They need you know, a funnel to work it through. Mm. And my career has absolutely followed that diagram, which everybody has seen on an Instagram post, where you have um, the graph and there's a straight line that says what people think success looks mm. like. And then there's the squiggly line underneath, which is what success really looks like. And that's what my career has looked like. It's been, you know, a mess most of the time. <laughs> but the the picture that I ended up with coming out the other side of it is what you see on LinkedIn, which is the marketing piece, which is what LinkedIn is, right? Yeah, yeah. Have um, you got, so a lot of our listeners are going to be like myself in the early talent community. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, what's your general advice when you're starting out in terms of failures? Um, fail quickly. Notice that you failed quickly and acknowledge it quickly. So say, I'm sorry, and this is what I'm doing about it. Mm-hmm. So never try to cover it up. As soon as you notice that you've deliberately, or even not deliberately, inadvertently done something, come clean, but with a plan. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm going to do about it. Or, and try to engage the person you failed with in the resolution. Yeah. And they will have so much more respect for you than if you tried to um, fix it before anybody noticed. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what most of us do. We try to fix it before anybody notices. So we never have to come clean about it. But you can actually turn that process into an advantage if you just sort of 
Mm. I think this isn't going very well. I think we need to shift gears. Could we do that? And I'm just letting you know. <laughs> and yeah. Could we move this forward in a different way? And come clean about it early on because you will gain so much more credibility yeah, with the people yeah. you're working with. And then, so, you know, I, d I definitely agree with those points. How about when people are perhaps nervous and want to avoid failures, they just sort of stay status quo, don't push their boundaries? If they hold on, if they are someone who holds on to that very, very tightly in terms of their, their personal level of confidence and the way they operate, they may find that they, they don't succeed very broadly in their career or even the role that they're in. If you look around at who are the most successful people you know and also the most content and happy people that you work with and positive, the people that you work with that you look at and go, they're getting something out of what they're doing every day. Those people let other people see them failing, mm -hmm. generally speaking. Or they let other people see them going through a process of resolution. So they might not say, oh, I've failed. Mm. But they will say, I think we need to think about our approach. I'm not sure that we have the right one. And they open the doors a little bit on what they're experiencing and they let other people in. Yeah. So and if it does take a degree of confidence and self-belief to admit that. Yeah. It's not easy. And you don't have to, you know, it's not a binary approach. You don't have to say, good morning, I'm a complete failure today. <laughs> Let's talk about it. You can, Just like you did two minutes Exactly. <laughs> you can do a middle ground that yeah. says, I'm not entirely sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Can I talk to you through a few yeah. questions I have? And for, for someone who's uh, earlier in their career, that's probably the best approach. Is yeah. Don't worry so much about the answers, but definitely worry about the questions. Mm -hmm. Definitely come up with your, what, what were the three questions I would ask to make sure I'm on the right path? I'm not entirely sure I'm on the right path, but if I just want to test that a bit, mm -hmm. what would I ask? And use that so you don't really have to address your plummeting self-esteem. <laughs> you don't really have to address all that. Yeah. You just need to be forward thinking and being on your front foot. Yeah. Good advice, I think, all around. With um, a lot of the I, speaking that I do to women in technology groups, one of the talks I have is about confidence and how to have confidence. and. Um, there's a lot of talks running around about how to have confidence, so mine's not all that different. But what most of them say is, if you want to be confident, you should just go be confident. Mm. And you're sitting in the audience, and you're like, really? It's that simple. Like, <laughs> if, if, I could just, if I could just go be confident, Turn I wouldn't your be here. Switch. Yeah. I'd be at home watching X Factor. I wouldn't have spent 20 quid to sit here and listen to you. <laughs> so I begin from that point in the, the talk that I do, and then go on to talk about physical techniques you can do to develop a sense of confidence so that you don't have to like change your inner self-esteem and like fundamentally who you are, which is really hard to do. Because you know, probably when you went through the academy and when yeah. you went through the chartered accountant process, mm -hmm. you're seeing everybody in those formative years. Mm -hmm. Most of us are really a, a function of where we came from. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Until you start working it through later on. So I believe that there's physical things you can do that give you a feeling of confidence to sort of physically fake it without having to like go into therapy or such as so the front foot thing is um, so somebody coached me on my speaking at one point in time 
And what they observed about me is that they could tell when I was feeling nervous because I would start walking backwards away from the audience. And so what she coached me into doing, as soon as one of my foots went backwards, I push my other foot forward and I start walking towards the audience. And I don't stop until I've finished whatever sentence it is yeah. that I'm saying. And you gain endorphins and uh, sort of um, a reduction in adrenaline by moving forward. When you move backwards, adrenaline goes up and you feel nervous. So it's, yeah, it's, it's more of a, it's like a power pose. It is, it is. Mm. And it moves your body chemistry into mm. a place so you don't feel nervous. Mm. So the absence of the nervousness, you feel confident. Yeah. You feel better. It is amazing how you can it's trick your brain just by doing a few things like that. The slowing down of your sentences is another one. As soon as you speed up your sentences, adrenaline goes up, yeah. you feel nervous, and your client or your colleague or whoever you're talking to thinks you sound like a freak because you're rattling through mm. everything you're saying. As soon as you slow it down, you feel better. They feel better about you. Mm. <laughs> it all goes better. Yeah. So that, that, that was one of my mm. big learning points. So going through university, getting ready for assessment centers, presentations, when I used to practice them in front of my friends or my dad particularly, he'd always say, you are speaking so, so quickly. Bring it down. So he said, speak to the point where you think you sound stupid to everyone else. You're speaking so slowly in your own head that it's actually coming out at a normal rate. Yeah. Because otherwise it's like a machine gun. And you do speak all over the place. fairly yeah. quickly though. Yes, I do. I still do. <laughs> <laughs> There's certain cultures that speak very, very quickly yeah. in, in general. It's just their culture. It's just the way they are. Um, and then anybody whose accent or language is different from your own sometimes sounds a bit quick because yeah. um, you're not but used but to it. Americans and Canadians, I don't know, inherently always sound like they're way more in control of what they're saying and how, it's, how the voice actually comes out. It always sounds... I think our, the, I a why. North American speech pattern, I think, is a little slower unless you're from sort of a high-speed metro, like mm. maybe, you know, New York, people often mm. think someone who's a traditional New York style of speaking can sound a bit fast. Um, but, but there's lots of people, obviously, I, yeah. that New York is like London. There's people there from everywhere. True. So When I was basically over in America doing my training, speaking to the French for the first time, mm. they looked at me very confused every conversation <laughs> for about a month. <laughs> but we got through it. <laughs> So hold on, we've talked about stepping forward, slowing down speech, any other physical? So the other one, uh, which I quite like, it's a new one in the repertoire in the last couple of years, and I call it the Hillary Clinton. And I don't know if you remember from the debates, whenever she would approach the podium or make a point, she would hold her hands uh, vertical up and down with her thumbs on the top, parallel with her shoulders pointing straight out, and she would raise them and lower them very slowly in cadence with her sentence as she was making her point. Like directing in an aircraft? Into yeah, the so it's suggesting my point is straightforward because I'm pointing my point towards you. It's moving your energy forward with your hands going forward, Yeah. but it's accentuating the cadence of your speech Should by filming this? moving so we're all doing the actions with here. the yeah. iambic pentameter of your speech. And is it <laughs> finishing the sentence when your arms are parallel? Correct. And you finish it off with a period at the end of your sentence and and spread oh, your no. fingers a little bit the way you're doing, Connor. So 
you don't necessarily have your fingers close together like a Spock kind of thing, <laughs> but a little, a little yeah. more open. And you kind of slowly make your point like this. Bill Clinton did that also when he, because he's an amazing speaker. Yeah. And he did that a little bit. The tone of voice and the, the pattern that a lot of really, really good American speakers follow is the Martin Luther King pattern of speaking, almost evangelical. And, mm. um, yeah, where he goes up and down and up and down, and then he makes his point. Yeah. And we humans like to hear that. We like to listen to that, and we, mm. we remember that and then when he repeats it with like a key phrase you never forget that phrase for the rest of your life yeah you'll remember it forever um what, fa- what phrase was that i'm joking <laughs> oh my gosh you're putting me on the spot <laughs> now i'm sitting here going oh. <laughs> even charlie knows that the other person yeah, okay. that yeah. that has picked up on that that i listen to a, a lot when i'm practicing is maya angelou she does a whole martin luther king style of speaking for her poems and uh, I apologize that I don't know who. So uh, a more um, culturally connected one here is Winston Churchill's. Okay, if you listen yeah, to his yeah. radio um, mm. addresses on YouTube, he does it. Quite well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's got a lot of good three-syllable words. Did you watch The Crown? Well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of... Um, you know your your point about failures and how to overcome them I started watching myself speak mm. and um, doing presentations a long long time ago I was probably early 30s and I pr- it was probably when I sort of had my first kind of um, senior manager job at that stage of the game and I started paying attention to it then mm. and that's one of the things I've enjoyed the most in my career but I also find when I've had colleagues and team members, if they approach me and want to know how to do better or how to overcome something, if you can get a handle on your speaking, you can get a handle on a lot. Yeah. On a lot of things in your world. Um, is that a big part of the sort of coaching stuff you're doing with the Business Women's Network? And the, it is. Yeah. The, um, I've done... We did a whole new program of events for 2018, but three of them actually probably had a speaking personal development component yeah. to them. So um, one of them was these office network days. I don't know if you've seen the signs around the office, but it's the in-person coffee hour that we do once a quarter. And I usually just have a short speaker at the beginning to just get the audience going. And so the, f- the very first one was my one of my speaker coaches mm-hmm. and she did 15 minutes at the beginning and just did sort of top five tricks to do yeah thing. stuff it's so important but then mm. it gets <coughs> overlooked quite often so, and it's you know, it really, really easy to probably implement and if you just know these top five things practice them a couple of times they're yeah you're training yourself on sunday night around the house in front of the bathroom mirror do a mm. bit of practice and it's amazing what it can do for people that's something i've noticed is the importance of preparing for presentations a lot of people don't do it and when they go in try and freestyle and it falls apart and that you just instantly lose your audience lose credibility yeah just start all over again it's one of the things we do as employees of a corporate we think we've done our prep when we've done our slide deck (laughs) and we haven't we have not done our prep when we've done our slide deck we've only done our trap prep 
when we've got our messages yeah. right and we know our messages line up with what the client wants to talk about. Yeah, the slides aren't the presentation. The story is the, yeah, the story. The slides are is the presentation. Just a thing on the screen. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's the art of it. You know. It is, mm. and I think you know, as a group of colleagues, we need to be brave enough mm. to tell each other this stuff when we're preparing for things together. You know, we need to be brave enough to say. Connor, that's the best slide deck you've ever done. But could we now work on our approach? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> and just exactly, you know, put yeah. it on the table in the nicest possible way. Yeah, that so we need to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> if you start taking that sort of stuff personally, then I don't know. We're all doomed. We're all doomed. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's one thing I just picked up in that in the last twenty minutes or so as we're speaking there, uh, and I'm just conscious of some of the feedback that we got from our first uh, episode from um, Paul Romani. Paul Romani, yeah. Uh, our man on Lemur. Uh, probably one of our four or five listens on Lemur. Yeah, one of our subscribers. <laughs> yeah. Hiya, Paul. Uh, now, he, Paul doesn't like jargon, doesn't like uh, acronyms. Mm. And, you know, he, I don't know what Paul's background is, but, you know, probably not necessarily in business technology and software. So, and we mentioned so industry 4.0 and that's a sort of a concept that we hear a good bit of in the enterprise software cloud technology world but you know to a lot of people out there it might not mean a whole lot we sort of heard of web 2.0 and I don't know what version of the internet we're on now but industry 4.0 is a concept and would suggest that it's moved on from industry 1, 2, 3 and now here we are in industry 4.0 so I don't know, maybe, I know Darren, you're, you know exactly what it is, but Charlie, can you explain to us what Industry 4.0? Well, I, I, I think I'd potentially throw that back on you to start off with, because you've had <laughs> multiple industries in your career, whereas I'm just sort of coming into the start of Industry 4.0. Well, yeah. no, I really didn't know what it was. Like, it started, it came out. So, sorry, sorry, Darren. Sorry, don't, I don't, won't don't, cover don't, up don't, for Charlie. Don't let Charlie, trying to keep him Charlie's pinned. throwing back a question. <laughs> Charlie's... Sales 101. Dodging to a question with a question. <laughs> always, always, always. So uh, in terms of the conversations that I've been having, it's about how you connect the whole business to automate as much as possible. So I think in you know the last 10 years, people would have very isolated line of businesses. So HR wouldn't be speaking to finance, wouldn't be speaking to manufacturing procurement. And you know the business is just isolated in itself. So, you know, can't operate as efficiently as possible. So, for me, Industry 4.0 is about taking back control, about aligning and connecting those different areas of the business behind one strategy mm. so that everyone's going for the same goal rather mm. than different bits going for a different goal. Mm. Yeah. I think then, like, standing on that, then, Darren, outside of the business. Well, it was a book that was published, and then the, the, the first sort of launch of the book was at Davos. And... It, it was a you know a research paper. It's on Amazon. It, um, I think it's like nine quid, so it's an easy read. And uh, the table of contents is on the look inside. So if you really don't want to read the book, but you just want to kind of see the theory, pop into look inside, and you can just sort of see what it is. But it talked about the industrial revolution, what came before, and Industry 4.0 is sort of what came after. So I think Industrial Revolution was. 2.0 or something. Agrarian was 1.0, 2.0 was Industrial Revolution. The information age 
is 3.0, and then the automation age is 4.0. And then they went through and talked about what's happening, what are the global economic trends that are happening mm. in Industry 4.0, and what, what does that mean for industries, what does that mean for people and workplaces and work, what does that mean for money and yeah. currencies and wealth. Um, and they, they're talking about it in that book from a global point of view of like what's happening to us. Mm. But then the biggest companies in the world have taken that book and put their own coat of paint over it. So the first time I heard about it was when I was at PwC and they rendered that book into a few different thought pieces across their practices mainly to drive, they wanted to drive some advisory projects and they did a few different offerings around that. Generally, it became like a business transformation offering. You know, how do you transform yourself from an automated single country company in that might be a metal basher from the Midlands yeah. into a global player that can sell your products anywhere in the world using labor forces anywhere mm -hmm. in the world and take payment for your goods in any mode yeah in any mode and in any technology so that was the kind of thing that it was all about at sap exactly, it's what charlie said it's we have product platforms and so we want the product platforms to be the fiber that runs underneath those strategies and it's about connectedness anywhere anytime for any sector for any industry that you want to want to be running yeah. Um, the book that I read was a little bit shorter than the one that <laughs> <laughs> It was a pamphlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I started going to all these meetings, and colleagues of mine at PwC started tossing out Industry 4.0, Industry 4.0, and, um, and most of the internal knowledge pieces hadn't been released yet. So I was like, what are they talking well, about? <laughs> I, think, I think an interesting point on this is a lot of the content that SAP shares around Industry 4.0 and you know it's the same Oracle Salesforce they're all doing it mm -hmm. but we've also got to be having a conversation with customers about what it is because a yes. lot of them, to them don't know yeah. what it is and mm. it still comes back to the same fundamental which is what problem are you trying to solve yeah and do the concepts that we've talked about in Industry 4.0 help give you a framework for solving those problems so you don't go buy Industry 4.0 but you might use some of the concepts trying to solve your problem. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a, an interesting topic and concept and I know it's going to be, it's the challenge for us to understand exactly what it is and how it can become relevant to our customers and the, yeah. the businesses we're, we're speaking to because, you know, it's translating a, a theory, a concept, an idea into you know, what does it mean in a business plan? In, in the software industry, one there's lots of things that are going to impact us, but one of the things that um, it's going to impact us and our customers is our entire industry, from a business applications point of view, is built on the idea that it's people mm. using our software. Mm. It's not going to be just people anymore. It's going to be some combination of people and machines and yeah, robots yeah. using our software. And a lot of our platform is built for a person yeah. using it. So how do, how, does, how do we shift so that our customer, who is a person, a robot, a machine, can use our products? And achieve the same outcomes. And achieve, yeah. achieve yeah. what they want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good point. So kind of coming on to obviously your specialism in financial services and retail, how do you see Industry 4.0 plan out in those? Why are you trying to throw <laughs> these big... <laughs> 
philosophical I question. Thought, I, thought, I thought I'd pass it back to you. You passed it over to me a second ago. This is a podcast battle. It, it, that's what it's turning into, and I don't think that's what our listeners... If this gets are. violent, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Darren. Thanks for being refereeing this. Uh, yeah, We'll move on from that one, Charlie. Uh, people can find the answer to that on my blog, which I will write straight after this. <laughs> um, I know I'm conscious. I'm just looking at the clock here. We've been speaking for coming up to an hour now, but I, w- I think we'll probably try and keep it in and around an hour, hour ten probably stage but one of the topics we have here is about diversity and with our previous guest Graham Woolley we spoke about diversity uh, in that episode and it was myself Charlie and Graham as three white males and I think it probably raised a few eyebrows I think Paul O'Mahony actually asked about that in one of his bits of feedback did he? yeah why are three white males speaking about diversity yeah Yeah. that's exactly it (laughs) which is fair enough but we were used coming at it from the the age point of view of diversity and three different age groups working in business and that was a diverse group of people from that perspective. But now we have our first female guest and Darren you're very involved in the Business Women's Network within SAP and I know you do some things outside of SAP around coaching women in their careers and in the technology industry. So I don't know, maybe I'll just get, it is a very hot topic at the moment. Maybe just get a bit of brief insight into what you do in that world around diversity and what what are you advocating for and what successes are you seeing? So I think it's awesome that it was like three white dudes sitting around talking about diversity. That kind of means that things are moving. Like that's pretty good actually. So high five. Okay, I'll take that. Um, so I was not some sort of you know latent feminist that decided they needed to start you know. Um, doing things with women in technology, it crept up on me. So most of my career, I didn't really pay much attention to Mm. it. I didn't feel like I was under a ceiling. I never was under a ceiling. I didn't really feel like I was kept away from opportunities. What started it off was when I became a manager and I had people reporting to me and um, people started approaching me for advice and help and um, ideas and problems to solve and that sort of thing. And that's when the penny dropped and I went, oh, um, there's lots of people out there that don't feel like they have the same sort of choices as other people. Why is that? And when I came to the United Kingdom and there's so many different cultural backgrounds here, you learn a little bit about about how people come through life and not everybody comes through life with the same sorts of opportunities and homes and choices and that sort of thing. So it became more important to me when when I moved here because I had a lot of opportunity and I had a lot of people that helped me and I get a lot of a lot out of seeing other people um, achieve their take advantage of their opportunities and achieve things and one thing sort of led to another where I collected thoughts about about different things and so the reason I do it is because I think if you create choice and opportunity for females by default you'll create choice and opportunity for everybody Mm. so I think there's a world of females out there that do want more choice and opportunity, but I think there's also a world of people, men included, who want more choice and opportunities. And we're kind of getting to the point now where old models are starting to break down and get a little wobbly. So the time is sort of now, and I think that's why diversity topics are such good topics right now. Mm. 
And that trends into the second reason. It's a good topic right now, and right now diversity sells. Our clients want us to mirror them. Our clients want us to reflect who they are in what we sell because software only sells so much right now. Features and benefits of pointing and clicking is only so interesting. Mm. And clients want to partner with you. They want to know the organization and the group of people that they're doing business with. And they want to see a collection of people that look like them. And so right now, I think diversity sells. And if you mirror who your client is with what you bring to the table, you will be successful. And you'll probably also just have a plain old better day at work. I think you'll also just enjoy who you work with. And that's a big thing for me, having a good day at work. And I, I like to take different types of people sort of down that road. So that's kind of why I got involved and how I got involved with it. At SAP, um, the direction at a global level is very much trying to use our employee resource groups, which are you know every possible shape, size, color, description, mm-hmm. model of a group of people to influence our business, so create more value for our customers, create more value for our employees and shareholders. So that's the mandate as well for the, the BWM. More choice, more opportunity, um, more uh, for our clients as well as our employees. And yeah, I, that's within SAP and then outside of SAP, <coughs> are you doing stuff because you know, you're obviously, that nomination coming from Computer Weekly is one of the most influential, influential women in UK tech. Was that a... That came out of um, some work that I did. So I helped another company set up their um, diversity group. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the people who was part of that effort um, knows that publication very well. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was that group of people that nominated me the first year in 2017 because it, that was when I had helped them that year. And when I say helped them, you know, I've been part of uh, Avanade, Accenture's diversity organization, then PwC's, uh, now SAP. So I've seen a few different incarnations of it so it was really just kind of helping them with the model and the business plan and kind of what they hope to achieve with it and then I invited a bunch of people so that they had you know some breathing people drinking their booze and eating their food sort of at the event kind of You're thing. being very modest there I'm sure you did um, a lot more than that and then in the second year it was a thing that I did in the Microsoft community to attempt to attract more diverse types of people into the Microsoft consulting community because that ecosystem has the same problem that the SAP ecosystem has where there's uh, there really isn't a lot of bodies being added to the consulting community it's a group of essentially the same base of supply of consultants and so the impact is it's more challenging to run a project for a client and Mm. it's everybody's revenue base is constrained a bit so we ran a returnship program for a group of four Microsoft partners to source and guide uh, people who'd been out of the workforce for two years that wanted to return so that would either have been a professional person an industry refugee someone who'd left the workforce due to family care or what have you but wanted to come back and very uh, good yeah yeah, it it was good so year one we placed uh, six people, year two, it was ten, I believe. As my, in Microsoft consultancy. Microsoft partners, yeah. Wow. So even even in the SAP space, you know, one consultant represents several million pounds of yep. li- license and subscription revenue yeah. that you can place. 
and you know that's that's a big impact if you yep. just find one consultant that can get a longevity in their career of at least sort of five years. Well, what would you say to the uh, the listeners out there who might view that as sort of uh, taking the diversity agenda and using it for cynical commercial purposes rather than the other purposes that people are yeah. involved in diversity about? I, th I think the, the cynical commercial purposes do drive change. Mm. And so I'm happy to use them in order to accomplish the things that I'd like to achieve and I'd like to see for people. Um, the commercial purposes, you know, the research shows that the commercial purposes have to be present for the change Absolutely. in the world to happen. Mm -hmm. So the, the different studies that have happened in, in the UK around boards and women in leadership show that stock prices improve over time and there's lower volatility in stock prices if you have a diverse board and diverse management team. That's not just female, but lots of different diversity yeah. because you've just got a better group of people making your decisions. Um, so I'm quite comfortable using a commercial model to great. drive change. I no, I think it's great. Because I think right. it, you know, it gives us all a level of influence um, that can actually make something happen. Cool. Get some young people on the board. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Charlie Jobson. Yeah. What SAP board member. <laughs> the, the 2019. <laughs> My real agenda that Those isn't on listening. any yeah. social profile is I'd like us all to be able to bring our dogs to the office in more oh. offices. <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't say that to that, Charlie. That's Charlie the change I'd actually like to drive. Charlie has 12 dogs <laughs> in so his family home. My, my dad retired from, again, software probably five years ago, and him and my mum bought into a franchise called Pet Pals. Oh, so I've seen Pet Pals. They, they now literally have 12 dogs every day <laughs> of the year. So when I go home, you know, they're in my bed, I have to sleep on the sofa, uh, or a dog bed. Uh, it's very interesting, but good fun. They probably prefer that to you being in your bed. Yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. <laughs> Do you have a dog? I used to have a dog, and I'm desperate for a new one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you could, 2019. You have a crew, I think, for us to have a dog in a one-bed flat with a yeah. one-metre square balcony. <laughs> well, I think dogs in offices also kind of like brings the tone into the right place and aligns everybody. Yeah. 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 True. Makes for a better day. Well, if Jens is listening in, I think we should <laughs> petition this. D dogs at KWS? Yeah, yeah. New, new group? Absolutely. <laughs> Going global. Yeah. <laughs> oh. You and between you and I, Charlie, we've got plenty of the supplies. Like no, we I I've got two dog beds at home I could bring in. You've probably oh got God, a few. Yeah, I, I, I that's a lot. I think we've got probably about 100 kilograms of dog food at any one time in the house. So you could make a snack center yeah, in the office. <laughs> yeah, 100 k. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. And is it dogs of different sizes? All types of dogs. West Highland Whites, Border Terriers, Great Danes, Labradors, everything. We would have a diversity issue that we'd have to face because <laughs> the cat people would start oh, wanting to bring oh in the cats. God, yeah. So we'd sure have to figure something out there. We'd well, the cats and dogs can get along. Abs I had a yeah. cat for a while as well, and they go along fine. But I mandated the equality, so they, they had to get along. Writing down the terms of reference for this in your group. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's not sort of the initiative is not dogs at KWS, it's pets, pets. at KWS. I like that. <laughs> I've got a friend, they've got a, uh, an office goldfish. Hmm. Doesn't interact quite as much as a dog or a cat, but no. you know, geez, come on, goldfish—they're the worst pet. There are it was my first pet, but they don't offer much. A dog or a cat would sell software. That's the thing. It would. It, it would. would. 
<laughs> One goldfish that interested me. So in my final year at Durham, so when was that? Four years ago, me and my girlfriend, we won a goldfish. And it's now still alive in Durham. So it's getting passed around. So every time a new head of theatre comes into the college, they get given the goldfish Archimedes and Prometheus. And they look after them. So they're still alive, which is... Uh, the same good fish. Life. Yeah. That's a very smart goldfish yeah. with a name like that. Archimedes and Prometheus. Prometheus, yeah. Prometheus. Um, so the head of theatre. Head of theatre. We you head college. of theatre? No, I was part of it. So Are you an actor? <coughs> no, so coming back to trying to get better at public speaking, I was rubbish when I first started university, so I really wanted to push myself out of my comfort zone. Hmm. So I went to the play. I wasn't very good in it, but you know, just getting out there and speaking in front of... I think one night we had about 300 people um, was good. Adrenaline pumping pretty heavily. Um, yeah. yeah. What was the play? Uh, a Flea in Her Ear, so a French comedy. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, French comedy. Did anyone yeah. record it? No. Is it available anywhere? Unfortunately not. No. It's must, when was it? Four or five years ago? No, so that was in my first year, so six years yeah. ago. Yeah, probably not. No, it probably would be up on some social media. Yeah. I'll make sure to dig it out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very good. Um, so there's one sort of point that I wanted to touch on before we probably wrap things up. And I think it was something we were talking about before, Darren, when we were having a chat about this podcast. More around the, the trends in business challenges that we're seeing today and how they've evolved. You know, are, the, are businesses facing different challenges today than they faced 10 years ago or five years ago? And why? And where do you see, how do we address those challenges? You know, when I talk to a lot of our clients and then even, you know, just people in the industry, there's a massively higher level of uncertainty mm. when making decisions about platforms or business changes mm. today. And, and even, you know, quite specifically the last sort of two to three years than there has been for, for a long period of time, sort of since I've been in the industry. Mm. And if you look at sort of some of the things that are factoring into that, there's a lot of sort of the economic instability, the political instability that's sort of in the background. But where that seems to be impacting people is a very different workplace, very different ways of managing your labor. Competition doesn't look like competition used to look like. You can't see your competition the way you used to be able to see your competition. And then your industry, your industry doesn't look like how it used to look, and you're probably in more than one or a different shape of an industry than you used to think you were in. And all of that added together, I think, is making our key client decision makers really uncertain. It's not only do they not necessarily know the same, they, they're not necessarily aware of what decision they're making, but the method by which they would go through making that decision isn't the same anymore. Mm. So the path towards getting to yes or getting to no doesn't look like what it used to look like. When people used to buy ERP, it was, well, I'll do some demos and I'll have somebody make a big spreadsheet with everything I want down the left and all my options across the top and then I'll start filling in the boxes. And then I'll do a project plan and I'll kind of take a look at the money and the time and how much is that going to take. People still generally do that. Someone somewhere still makes a spreadsheet and someone somewhere still makes a project plan. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that that's the decision anymore. There's a whole other layer of decision-making that is on top of that that relates to the business direction, the business risk management, 
and even the personalities and relationship of the management team because tenure has reduced as well. So tenure of a management team, tenure of middle managers isn't as long as it used to be. Mm. And workforces aren't around in the same way as they used to. So I think on the software side, we have to do better at client engagement and client nurture than we ever have. It used to be you could kind of just run your sales cycle. That's not really enough anymore. That's not really going to get you a closed deal. We need to have a longer nurture cycle where we stay connected mm -hmm. to our customers and, and really understand what that uncertainty for them means. Yeah. And if we can connect to that, I think we can get it into a manageable place for them. But, but if we don't connect to that, we spin our wheels, the clients spin our wheels, and, and at least in the last 24, 36 months, I think we've seen a lot of do-nothing decisions or do something in six month decisions where they just make no decision and that feels better than even going to a, another demo. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things you said there, you know, around the uncertainty that I suppose it goes back to the industry 4.0 thing as well. You know, you might be operating in an industry now that you didn't, you weren't operating in two years ago or you didn't realize you're operating. Or it had a different impact, for example. Even, don't have to name names, but is could you give any examples to sort of bring that to life? Transportation costs, for example. Transportation costs for a manufacturer, when you were only serving a narrower set of markets, were hardly a big deal. They mm. kind of, you could roll them into some sort of pricing model that you were very comfortable with. Mm. But as your business grows, transportation for some of sort of our top of mid-market, bottom of enterprise um, layer clients, those transportation costs kill them. And it means they... They, they will have a very different position in those markets. So now they're shopping for a platform. Are they shopping for a platform that has transportation on the side of a manufacturing or assembly hub set of software? Mm. Or do they go looking for a dedicated transportation solution as if they were a transport company? Or do they acquire a transportation Or business? do they acquire a transport business? Mm. Or do they create a strategic relationship mm. with a transport business? And if they do that, how much process sits on what side of that, therefore how much software do I need? Mm. So all those business decisions are all wrapped up with I just need to go buy some software. Yeah. They're not decoupled. And so and then there's the rising uncertainty of that's probably happening in Europe. And mm. we all know the B word that's been happening in Europe. Even if the B word was already over, we would still have the uncertainty of the impacts and how to actually manage it and how to actually deal with it. And, you know, Brexit in this part of the world is just our version of it. In other parts of the world, they have their own version of that uncertainty happening, yeah. whether it's political or economic or what have you. That's just the one that we face here. Canada has their own. They've got a couple different ones that they're dealing with right now. The U.S. has mm. some obvious ones that we're quite aware of. And, you know, this just happens to be what, what we're facing here. So, so what do you do about that? I think we have to be good consultants to our clients and don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have to help them move in steps, help them use frameworks and move in steps and solve the puzzle with logical structures and work with them like a partner, yeah. like a, you know, a grown-up human being and stop the I have a new car to sell you conversation. So that, yeah, that's a huge shift from five, ten years ago, maybe when these are my business processes, I need a new computer system to allow me to do this. Uh, can you show me a demo of 
A, B, C, D process. Because yeah. that whole process was built on the assumption that they knew that they were... They knew their constraints. So they knew they operated They knew that those industry. were what their constraints yeah. were. Knew their competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think competition is interesting point, though, because, uh, as you mentioned, competition is now different. So financial services are now having to mm-hmm. compete with the likes of Monza and these other startup application banks, which offer a really good service. Mm-hmm. So... There's a bit of a, I don't know, a mixture there that people are taking longer to make these decisions, but perhaps they don't have longer to make them. Good point. Mm. Yeah, good point. The decision lead time is yeah. probably actually shorter. Yeah. Certainly for the capture opportunity challenge, because your competition that you can't see is going to be moving a lot faster than you think they are. Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, Charlie, the consumer goods industry. One of the clients I had a few years ago. Um, were high-packaged consumer goods of uh, long-shelf-life foods, so dry goods. And um, they were not making any money on any of their products anywhere in the world. And they uh, bought all their raw materials from suppliers, from agricultural product suppliers. And through a whole bunch of analysis, they worked out the only way they could manage this was a few years ago, and I don't think this is the answer to everybody's problem, but this is what they thought the answer was to their problem. They thought the way they could reduce their price, their sensitivity to price volatility was to buy farms. Yeah. They bought so many farms that that was actually the biggest percentage of their asset base. So now what are they? Are they consumer goods? Or are they agricultural manufacturing? Yeah, yeah. With the transportation issue, with all of these currency issues in emerging markets, Yeah. what are they? Yeah. So... They did a good thing. They addressed a really big challenge in their business, and they were experiencing the benefits of it. But now they're pretty complex. Mm, yeah. So now when the SAP salespeople and consultants show up, what kind of conversation do we need to have? Much more robust. Yeah. We need to be really broad in that puzzle in mm. terms of figuring out how we figure out where their real need sits. Yeah, it's a challenge, and it's not, not getting any easier. No. More simple, but keeps it exciting yeah I mean that's why I stay in it that's why I uh, I still enjoy software and I still enjoy the, the people that work with software and the clients that uh, use software and technology to, to build their business mm-hmm. so Charlie any closing thoughts questions remarks I guess it's interesting speaking to Darren and to you because a lot of the challenges you faced at the start of your career in terms of you know getting better at public speaking, facing failure, facing diversity challenges, they're all things that I and my colleagues at SAP are going through. So it just kind of reaffirms that we are doing the right things, stay the course um, and keep going. I think the discussions we've had around uh, business and technology have been quite interesting today um, in terms of the challenges around you know fast competition, you're facing different challenges. I think What's important to me and what I've seen the customers that I'm working with is finding the why. Why are we doing this um, before the what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, I've I've enjoyed that. Absolutely, yeah. And I can echo all those comments, Charlie. And I suppose on that one, coming up to an hour twenty minutes. So I say thank you very much, Darren, for joining us today for our second episode in this fledgling podcast series of what we see and I think uh, we've given our listeners a great insight today into you know, certainly what Darren you've seen in your career to date in your many different capacities and guises 
and yeah, got a bit more of an insight into Charlie's home life, <laughs> <laughs> the dogs and the theatre background, which is yeah. uh, that's something we'll have to Very revisit. Theatrical, yeah. <laughs> Jazz hands and all that. Uh, but no, I think it's been a really good conversation. Again, thank you very much, Darren. I'm sure we'll have you back. We'd love to have you back at some stage again to talk more. And yeah, I think we'll leave it there, unless you have anything else to finish with. No, thank you both as well. I think you did a great job today. You're very good talk show hosts. This might be another career option. couple faces for radio. <laughs> great um, stuff. Oh, sorry, we going to say something? Said I'll be interested in the, the feedback. I'm going to go look at the comments once you've posted it, so hopefully we can engage a bit with your, your four followers. To, to filter through, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's three, not four. <laughs> you need to get on Lemur now. I, I do. Yeah, I'm making yeah. a note. I will get on Lemur because I, I think can, that would be fun to kind you can of interact live. continue the conversation. Yeah, exactly. But thank you, audience, as well, for listening. Okay. Until next time, bye-bye.